James chapter 5, if you have your Bible, I trust that you do, James chapter 5. And I mentioned it in the call to worship, and I just want to remind you that this is not just a time in the service when the worship is done, you know, we're done singing and, you know, the worship is done and now we're going to study the Bible. The whole worship gathering is to be worshiped to the Lord. And we worship through the scripture reading, we worship through the singing time, we worship through the the hearing of God's word preached, we worship even in fellowship and in our conversations with one another even afterwards. So we are continuing our time of worship as we look into the word of God. James 5 verses 7 to 12. And just again to let you know, we're coming to the end of this wonderful little book of James. Next week we will look at the topic of prayer and then we will have one more closing message at the end of James chapter 5 on reaching out to believers who are caught in sin. And then we will be concluded with the book of James and we'll prepare for Resurrection Sunday after that. But James 5, 7 to 12, I want to preach today four keys to patient endurance. Follow with me as I read God's word. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and he is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes is to be yes and your no is to be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. We come to the preaching of the word of God, O Lord. Father, it is our desire as our loving Father and the powerful King that my mouth would be the mouth moving, but the voice would be the voice of Almighty God. That it truly would be, thus says the Lord, that the preaching of the Word would be faithful and that your Holy Spirit would take this precious, perfect Word from James 5. And take it deep into our hearts so that we would receive it not merely as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which will perform its work in us who believe. Do that work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. John Hooper lived in the country of England during the time of Bloody Mary in the 1500s. John Hooper was a faithful and a very bold preacher in the English Reformation. He, he was kind of like a prophet-like man. 
He was unafraid to denounce sin. He was unashamed to warn people of hell. And he was unrelenting in calling sinners to repent of their sin and to believe on Christ. And he was unhypocritical in his godly living. Well, John Hooper was preaching the word of God. And then when Mary took the throne, John Hooper's troubles really began. You might think of it like this, when Bloody Mary, as we know her, she took the throne, the sword of persecution was unsheathed, and she quickly hunted down the preachers, and one of the first that she went after was John Hooper. He was a preacher and a minister of the gospel, and he warned, was warned often by people who loved him and people in his congregation, and even those in leadership in England, that danger was drawing near to him. Danger is coming near. Persecution was approaching. His trials were abounding, and yet John Hooper would often reply, I am called to this place. I am called to this vocation of being a minister of the gospel. I am thoroughly persuaded that I must patiently endure and I must live and I must die with my sheep. He loved his congregation and he knew he had to patiently endure together with them. John Fox, that is the Fox's Book of Martyrs, John Fox, He said of John Hooper, in his doctrine, Hooper was earnest. In his tongue, he was eloquent in speech. In the scriptures, he was well studied. In his pains, he was tireless. And in his life, he was exemplary. It was said of John Hooper that he lived so godly and so above reproach in his speech and in his life, and he behaved himself so well that even his enemies, even Hooper's enemies, could find no fault with him. Oh, he, he had his troubles, and he had persecution. He had those who hated him and those who wanted him killed. Life was not easy, and opposition abounded, and evildoers threatened him often, and yet John Hooper patiently endured. And the question that I have, what is it that marks that kind of a life so that you can patiently endure? That's the question before us today. How do you patiently endure? What is this kind of life like to patiently endure? What are are the distinguishing characteristics? What are the features of a life marked by patient endurance? Well, before we go on and look at the paragraph here before us, let's just look no farther than our great example, Jesus Christ. He lived a life of perfect, patient endurance. He modeled patience, he modeled endurance, and he modeled tireless, relentless, patient endurance when he was living in this world. He was obeying his Father. He was rejected by men. He was put on a cross. He received the Father's wrath. He patiently endured. Hebrews 12 tells us that he... Considered the joy that was before him, and he endured the cross. 
This is your Savior. This is what he did. He persevered. He endured. He was patient. And as we look at this paragraph today, our great champion, our great example is Christ. Everything that you're going to hear as we look at this paragraph and as I preach this paragraph, our great example and our great model is to look to Christ. But it's a very pastoral, it's a very practical paragraph that Pastor James is going to call you and he's going to call me to a life of patient endurance. What are the keys? What do you have to know? What do you have to do? And I want to give you four of them as we work through this paragraph together. Now, there are a lot of details and there's a lot of theological doctrines and there's a lot of application that I want to give, but let me just sort of summarize the whole sermon, the whole sermon in one real brief sentence. The main theme that James is going to bring out is this, that you must live with patient endurance until the Lord's return. He's going to tell you how to do it, but the main overall goal of the whole sermon is that when times are tough, you need to live with patient endurance until the Lord's return. And here's the first key. Number one, how do you do this? You need to trust God until Christ returns. You need to trust God until Christ returns. Now, in verse 7, it begins with a very important word, and that word in your Bible is therefore. Well, what's the therefore? Therefore. Well, you have to look back to the last section. Last week, we looked at chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, which is the warnings and the judgments upon the rich, the ungodly rich that were oppressing. They were taking advantage of the poor, probably many of the believers that were the poor. Therefore, in light of that, James is writing to some in the congregation, probably they are the ones who are being taken advantage of. Maybe they are the ones who have been mistreated. Maybe they are the ones who have been misrepresented. They are struggling. They have been wrongly treated. They have been taken advantage of by the rich. What do you do? Do you rebel? No. Do you get even? No. Do you complain? No. James says in verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brethren. That's hard. Be patient. In light of everything that I've already said in verses 1 to 6, now you need to be patient until the Lord comes, meaning you need to trust in the Lord with the matters of life that you can't control. Because... Look at what Pastor James says. Look at the rest of verse 7. The farmer, he's going to use an illustration here. The farmer is going to wait for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and the late rains. And so James is a great teacher, and he's using an illustration of a farmer. 
Well, a farmer can't determine when it's going to rain and when it will not rain. And so, so James says, when it comes to the Lord's coming and all the injustices that you see around you and all the sin that surrounds you, you have to trust in God with what you cannot control, like a farmer who can't control the rain. The farmer can't produce the rain, he can't produce the crop. He can't produce the perfect harvest. He has to wait and be patient and trust in God with something out of his control. James is saying, that's a good example for us, Christian. When you are misrepresented, mistreated, unfairly treated, when you feel like you've been taken advantage of and everything in you wants to rise up, everything in you wants to get even, everything in you wants to... Pay them back. Don't miss the clear command to you and me as Christians. Therefore, brothers, be patient. Be patient. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Just like the farmer, you're waiting for the precious produce of the soil. You're waiting for the early rains. You're waiting for the late rains. You know that Christ is going to come back, but you have to trust God. And verse 8 continues the thought. Look at verse 8. You too, just like the farmer, you need to be patient, verse 8. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, don't miss the very important point of verse 8. You need to strengthen your heart. Strengthen your heart. Maybe in biblical language, we might know it as be strong in the inner man. Be strong in the inner man. You think, how in the world do I do that? How am I supposed to be strong in the inner man when I'm going through difficulties of life? Well, we need inner stability. We need inner strength. This is not hard-heartedness. This is not some sort of arrogant pride. This is true unflinching fortitude or strength that comes from a commitment to God's promises. It leads to uncompromising courage. It leads to unafraid boldness. It leads to endurance. James is saying, Christian, you're suffering. You're going through hardships. You're being unfairly treated. You're being taken advantage of. What do you do? Be patient. Be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient. And verse 8, he tells you to strengthen your hearts. Now, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me. You're in James. Keep your finger here, but go back to Ephesians 3. And I want to show you how practical this is for you and me as church members here in this family of believers. Well, how do you find strength? How do you get strength in your heart? How do you get that? Ephesians 3, verse 14, Paul is praying for the believers. He bows his knees, verse 14, before God the Father. From God, the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And Paul's prayer in verse 16, that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in the inner man. That's the same language. Here's how practical it is. Pray for one another. 
Pray for one another. One of the ways that you can trust God, one of the ways that you can grow in grace, one of the ways that you can strengthen your heart is by praying for the brethren, just like Paul did. Take Paul's words and make them your own in Ephesians 3. Lord, would you strengthen the church family with power through your spirit in the inner man? Same language is also found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, when the Apostle Paul says that God will establish your hearts in 1 Thessalonians 3.13. God will establish your heart without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what our God does. He strengthens you. He wants you to increase and abound in love and to establish your heart without blame. Again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope, may he comfort and strengthen your heart in every good work and word. This is what we need to hear when times are tough, when you're mistreated, when you're misrepresented, when you're taken advantage of, and you think, what do I do? God says, be patient. Strengthen your heart. How do we do that? We pray for one another and we trust that God will strengthen us and fortify us in the inner man as we trust in him. And why do we do that? Well, look at James 5. Go back to our text. And there's a couple of phrases here that speak of the Lord's return. Verse 7, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Why can you be patient? Christian, get this. You can be patient because you know that Christ, your Savior, is coming back. And this is the doctrine of imminency, that Jesus will come back at any moment. In verse 7, in verse 8, and in verse 9, three times we have references to the coming of the Lord. James has a high Christology of his brother. He calls him Lord. The coming of the Lord is near. The coming of the Lord is near. Verse 9, the judge is right at the door. Jesus is coming. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the coming of Christ. Revelation 22.20, he is coming quickly. Titus 2.13, we are to be looking for the blessed hope. And so, because you know Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he'll make all wrongs right, Christian, when you're wrongly treated, be patient. Be patient, be patient. And just like that farmer who's diligently working and he's serving faithfully and he's tilling the ground faithfully, You must trust the Lord. You must trust the Lord until Christ returns. That's the first key to patient endurance. James wants the believers who are going through difficulties to know, be patient, hang in there, strengthen your heart. God's coming is near. Don't focus so much on the things here. Trust God and look for the coming of the Lord. He's coming. A second key. Let me give you a second key. And James gives it to us right here in verse 9. And this is quite 
convicting for us. Number two, what's the second key? If you're going to patiently endure, you must kill complaining. You have to kill complaining against your brethren. Now, nobody wants to be a part of a congregation of complainers. Nobody wants to gripe against God's people. But often we can be. And I suppose if we're honest, and if we're just going to sort of bring it out in the open, often we can be frustrated. We can be so frustrated at each other's differences, and sometimes we can avoid or grumble at others because they're different than me. Or maybe we might disagree on how to deal with opposition or persecution or affliction. We might disagree with how they're handling a trial or the choices that they're making through the trial. And we might not agree with them and we could grumble at them or in our own hearts about them. We could complain against the brethren by venting at one another because of hardships and prolonged trials. I can't believe that God is doing this. And he hasn't taken it away. Venting, venting, venting. Another way, I suppose, that we might complain against one another would be to blame one another for unfulfilled expectations in the church or unmet desires in the church. Another way that we might complain against one another would be to speak about others rather than humbly speaking to others. If somebody has offended me or if, or if I have something against someone, rather than talking about them, going to the person in humility and speaking the truth in love. Those are not good. Those are things that we ought to not do in the church, but so often we do. James, in verse 9 Of our text, James 5, verse 9, look at it in your Bible. James is going to say, don't complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Because after all, the judge is right at the door. Now, the word complain is an interesting word. It could also be translated gripe. Don't gripe meaning to express your discontentment and your displeasure or your unhappiness with someone. Don't complain. Don't gripe against one another, brethren. Why is it so bad to complain? Why is it so sinful to complain? It's one of those common sins. In Jerry Bridges' words, it's one of the respectable sins. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Why is complaining so sinful and so abhorred by God? Well, because in our complaining and griping, it reveals a thankless heart. It reveals deeper sins within, probably like jealousy, pride, envy. And it reveals a distrust in God's sovereignty. Complaining, complaining. Now, don't miss the context. The believers who were probably poor economically are probably those who are being misrepresented and taken advantage of by the wealthy in chapter 5 that we saw last week. 
And they're complaining, and they're complaining, and they're complaining, and they're griping, perhaps even against one another in the church. James says, brethren, don't let that happen. Don't let there be any complaining. Don't let there be any griping. Why? Because he says you don't want to be judged. God, the judge, is at the door, meaning he's imminent. It's like the door is shut and his hand is right on the handle and the Lord is about to return. He's coming. I was reflecting on this this week and was reading and reading and reading and thinking about how common complaining is in my heart perhaps even in the churches as well. Negative effects of complaining. Well, it stops forward momentum. I mean, it's, it, it's hard to advance in gospel progression if we're complaining against one another. Another negative effect of complaining in the church is it fosters dissatisfaction in others. I mean, it just sort of cultivates and nurtures a critical spirit in the church, like fault-finding spirit. And I think another negative consequence of complaining in the church, it silences or it squelches appreciation of one another. It just sort of kills encouragement. It just sort of kills a culture of affirmation when we're just complaining, griping, finding the negative against one another. And James is saying, no, 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 don't do that. And when there's complaining and griping, it's so easy for that to just become a pattern of thinking. Just sort of our mindset. We just find the negative. It's easy to find the sins in others. And to make public the sins in others, rather than affirming the positive things that God is doing in others. And, maybe one more negative effect of complaining, it extinguishes praise and worship. It extinguishes praise and worship because you don't want to worship a God that you think is doing wrong to you. If I'm complaining against God, I think I know better than God, and I don't want to praise and worship him because I think I know better than him. And it's going to extinguish praise and worship. James is saying, because the judge is coming, because the judge is right at the door, brethren, in the church, you're going through hardship, you're going through trials, you're going through difficulties, you're being misrepresented, you're being taken advantage of, don't complain. Don't complain. Well, what do I do? How am I supposed to not complain? Number one, we put on thankfulness. We put on thankfulness. It's one of the most common biblical counseling homework assignments I give. Take a piece of paper and a pen and write a hundred things you're thankful for. And then pray through them and thank God for all of them. Be thankful. Number two, be content. Because we don't want to be God over God. We don't know better than God. We need to be content with and in our God. And third, if we are to be thankful and we are to be content... I think a related way that we can kill complaining is to be humble. To be humble. 
If you and I are not in hell, we ought to be thankful. We, we ought to be humble. We ought to be praising our Lord. We have life. We have breath. We have heaven. We have Christ. We have his word. We ought to rejoice. Anonymous author said it like this. If Christians would spend as much time praying as they do grumbling about one another, they would soon have nothing to grumble about. Now, don't miss the context. It's one thing to say don't complain. But the context is important. They're going through hardship. They're going through trials. Humanly speaking, in the world, people might say, well, just vent. You, you deserve it. Just be angry. Get even. And yet the Christian says, I can't complain. I will not complain. I must choose to be thankful, to be content, and to be humble. This key to patient endurance, number two, is to kill complaining against the brethren. But James continues because he knows the church is going through difficulty. He knows that believers are going through hardship, and he wants to give them a third key in your outline for how you can cultivate patient endurance. What is the key? Number three, you need to endure trials through God's mercy. Endure trials through God's mercy. Okay, so hear this. Misrepresented. Have you been there? Yes. You've been unfairly treated. You've been there. You've been opposed by the world. You've been there. Accused, threatened, harassed, taken advantage of, maybe robbed. You're alone. You feel lonely. And yet, you're seeking to be obedient to God. You can relate to that. That's what the believers are going through here in James chapter 5. And look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count them blessed who endured. And you have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That the Lord is full of compassion and he is merciful. Hmm. Verse 10. As an example. Isn't that great? It's like, it's like James the pastor is saying, I know you're going through hard times, so you're not alone. There have been those who have gone before you and they've suffered. And they've been misrepresented. And they've been mistreated. And they've been in the middle of persecution. And they have stood boldly. And they spoke out against the sins of the day. And they wanted to follow God. Even in great difficulty, they had strength to endure. This is important. Because you know, and I know, that our world is not getting more Christian. Your workplace is not getting more Christian. Our nation is not getting more Christian. It's more hostile. Times are going to get tougher and more personal, political, economically, and all the different ways in which we will find this more and more when we will be opposed, we will be hated, we will be threatened. 
We will be shamed. And the answer is, what do you do? What do you do? do do? How do you endure this? Can I remind you of Elijah? Remember the man Elijah in the book of 1 Kings and how he was opposed by the wicked King Ahab and his even more wicked wife Jezebel? Terrible duo. Or, or, can I remind you of the man Jeremiah? Thrown into prison, mistreated, misrepresented, falsely accused, thrown into a muddy cistern, wrote down God's word, only to have the king find it and cut it in half, throw it in the fire. Jeremiah suffered. Or can I remind you of Ezekiel? God called the man Ezekiel into ministry, and then God said, I'm going to kill your wife, and you can't cry. I'm not sure if I want to be a prophet if that's the call. But he endured. He did it. Can I remind you of Daniel? Probably a young teenage boy when his dad and mom were probably killed, and that young guy Daniel, as a teenager, was exiled northeast to Babylon. When he goes to Babylon under the power of King Nebuchadnezzar, he was thrown into a lion's den. Not because he did anything wrong. He did everything right. Or Hosea. Here's the prophet Hosea. God calls Hosea into prophetic ministry and God said, you're going to have a wayward, unfaithful wife. She's going to be a prostitute. And your real-life marital experience is simply to be a picture of unfaithful Israel and their relationship to God. Ah, Lord, that's a little too personal. It's a little too personal. Could you imagine the man Amos? Amos received lies, scorn, misrepresentation, false accusations. He was hated. John the Baptist... The forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, he was imprisoned and he was beheaded for boldly preaching and calling the sinful Herod to repent. Or we just read a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 11. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mocking, scourging, chains, imprisonment. Many were stoned, sawn in two, tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. These are men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, wandering in mountains, in caves, and holes in the ground, and all of these having gained approval through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for them. Oh, Christian, take the examples of the prophets. Well, what a great pastor. What a great leader, James 5. Right here in our section, you're going through hardship. You're going through opposition. And maybe that little temptation from the evil one is you're alone. No one can relate to you. You're going through a hardship. You're going through a trial. You're going through an experience. You're going through a threatening time. And you just feel like no one can relate. God would say, take the example 
take the example of the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. By the way, can we just look carefully at verse 10? The suffering and patience of the prophets came to them not because they sinned. Their suffering and their hardships came, can we say it? Because they did everything right. They spoke faithfully in the name of the Lord. That's what the text says. They preached faithfully. They gave God's message. They did what God wanted them to do. And their life got tougher. Harder. And yet, and yet, in times of suffering and times of sin all around us and societal turmoil, what a great opportunity to speak a word for the glory of God. Either speaking in the name of the Lord. Speaking of enduring trials, look at verse 11. James 5, look at verse 11. So James has talked about the prophets generally, but now he's going to zoom in on one. And you all know him. We're going to turn there in just a moment to Job. Let's consider the guy Job. Job. Somebody who suffered. Somebody who had all kinds of trouble and trial and hardship. And yet when you and I read Job chapters 1 and 2, do you know what we learn about this man? We learn that Job was an upright man, blameless, God-fearing, and he turned away from evil. That's what God said about him to Satan. I mean, that's a pretty good character profile from the Lord. Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. And yet, you know the story. Job chapter 1, his children die, his cattle are killed. It's like the financial account is just completely empty. He loses his health. He loses all pleasure in life. Even his own wife tells him, curse God and die. Just get this thing over with. Job chapter 3, here's a godly man who goes through great difficulty in life. Chapter 3 of Job, he curses the day of his birth. I can't believe I was born. And then an amazing verse in Job 13 verse 15. Even though God slay me, I will hope in him. Even if God kills me, I'm going to hope in my God. But nevertheless, I'm going to argue my ways before him. And he goes on to complain and pour out his heart and pour out his petitions before the Lord. You know the story. He had a couple of friend counselors, and they were terrible counselors. And he criticizes them, and Job had anguish of spirit, and he continued to endure, relying on God. He knew that in chapter 19, when he died, he knew that his Redeemer lived and he would stand and see God with his own eyes. He knew that his Redeemer lived. That's pretty amazing. 
After chapter, after chapter, after chapter of Job suffering, 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 and being badly counseled by others, God puts him in his right place in chapters 38 to 41 with thundering majesty. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when the mountain goats gave birth? Where were you when I commanded the hawk to soar in the sky? Where were you when Job has no answer, has no answer. Until we come to the very end of the book, Job chapter 42, you can't miss the ending. After all that God showed to Job in these final chapters, Job 42 verse 1, then Job finally answers the Lord, and Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I didn't understand. I have declared things too wonderful for me, things I didn't know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Lord, I repent. I repent. In my suffering, I doubted you. Now, if you go back to James chapter 5, we have to notice a word very importantly. James chapter 5, the text says in verse 11, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. Well, Job endured, but he wasn't always patient. He complained a lot. He cursed the day of his death. He cursed his counselors. He complained against his counselors. But he endured. He persevered. He trusted in God. All times were difficult, but he trusted in God. Now, if you're there in James 5, verse 11, there's one word you can't miss. It makes the whole thing come together. James 5, 11, you have heard of the endurance of Job and you have seen the, thank you, the outcome. You have seen the outcome Did you know that Job 42 tells us that at the end of Job's life, God blessed him and he had more than he did at the beginning of his life? What does that mean? When you and I are going through trials, we have to remain patient and look at the outcome of the Lord's dealings with us in our trials because we often look at the trial when we're in the middle of the thunderstorm and we don't like it. You see, whatever trial you're going through, whatever hardship you're going through, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end. The end is going to reveal that God, as the text says, verse 11 of James 5, that the Lord is full of compassion and he is merciful. You might not see it when you're in the middle of the thunderclouds and the storm. You might not feel that God is very compassionate towards you when you're being misrepresented, when you've been taken advantage of, when you've been robbed. You can't see it now, but you've got to be patient. You've got to hope in God's purpose. This is that light bulb moment in the counseling room when the counselee looks up And you can see the light bulb go off. And they say, now 
I can thank God for my trial. They didn't say that when they came to you for counseling, but now they get it. Now they get it. Okay, let me illustrate it like this. James 5 is like this here. It's like a plane that takes off. And it's in a rainstorm. And let's just say you're taking off from a really tough rainstorm. The clouds are thick. The rain is loudly pounding on the windows of the airplane. It looks dark and gray and gloomy outside. And so as you take off, the turbulence is almost too much to bear. I mean, you're thrown up and down, side to side. The bags are shifting above you in the overhead compartment. The fastened seatbelt side is lit, and they won't let anyone get up and walk around the cabin. And your plane is like a rubber toy being shaken back and forth in the mouth of a dog. Until you finally ascend to the cruising altitude... And you look out the window and it's nothing but blue skies and you see the sun. And you look down below and you can see all the clouds down there. James says, when you're in the middle of that storm, you need to remember that there's an outcome ahead. You need to remember that God is up to something good. So when you're in the storm, you can't see the blue skies and the sunlight right in front of your eyes. But sooner or later, you will. Verse 11 of James 5, you've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that God is full of compassion and he is Merciful. So Christian, jot these two things down. You got to get this. When you're going through trials, number one, you got to have a long-term view. Long-term view. I know that God is going to come. I know the outcome of the trial is going to bring about good. I'm going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. I know it. I believe it. I trust it. Even though you might not feel it. You got to have the long term view in mind. And second of all, you got to write this down. You must rely on the character of God. And that's what verse 11 ends. The Lord is full of compassion. It'd be fun to just give an hour of a study on the Greek word full of compassion. It's so neat. It's two words that James glues together here to show that God is inwardly emotional toward his people. God feels what you're going through. He can sympathize with you. He's a great high priest who can sympathize. And he's merciful, merciful. So can you have patient endurance? Sure. You need to endure trials through God's mercy. James continues. There's one more verse. And it's an important verse, and you got to look at verse 12. Notice the first couple of words, but above all. It's kind of like the preacher says, okay, I've just given you a couple of verses here about how to endure trials and have patient endurance, but you got to get this. Above all, you have to get this. Here's the fourth key for patient endurance. You must speak truthfully with reliable integrity. Speak truthfully with reliable integrity. 
Now, James has talked a lot about our words. James 1, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James 3, he talked about our words and our tongue and the danger of our tongue in James chapter 3. He's talked about the danger of our words in chapter 4 and favoritism and presuming upon the future and speaking against one another. James has talked a lot about our words. Proverbs talks a lot about our words as well. Proverbs 4.24, put away a deceitful mouth. Proverbs 10.19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Proverbs 18.13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Or Proverbs 21.23, this is just a, a simple key for life. Whoever guards his mouth and his tongue will guard his soul from trouble. <laughs> it's a good one. So verse 12, okay, above all, Pastor James, you're going through difficulty, he says. You're going through hardship. You're being misrepresented. You're being mistreated. You've been unfairly treated in life. Above all, verse 12, my brethren, above all, verse 12, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you don't fall under judgment. You know, I suppose a few generations ago, before World War II, what was often called a gentleman's handshake might have been a fair substitute for a written contract, a good handshake. But I suppose a a generation or two after that, formal contracts were then needed before you could trust a business person's word. Well, tragically now, we're far from all of that. We live in times where contracts and agreements and covenants and commitments are so often broken and amended and reworded and shrouded with lies, it's hard to even keep it straight anymore. And you and I need to know that societies will inevitably collapse. When people lose their verbal integrity. And when that happens in society, like it is our own society, Christians must remain at the forefront of those whose word can be trusted unquestionably. You might not be able to trust others, they might not be able to trust their politicians but they should be able to trust you and me. And that's what Psalm 15 teaches as well, a worshiper who speaks truth. But that's what verse 12 also says. My brethren, don't swear. He's not talking about taking an oath in court. That's not in the context here. Some people say I could never go to court and swear and take an oath. That's not what James is teaching here. You can do that. Some people might say, yeah, we shouldn't cuss. Nor use profanity or swear or have foul-mouthed words. And that's, that's accurate, but that's not what this verse is teaching. What verse 12 is teaching is that you must not swear, that is, make an oath, in order to verify or validate your word. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said this as well. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. What's the point of all of this? Pastor James is saying truthfulness should be the norm that comes out of your mouth and nobody should doubt what you say. 
You should say it, and people should believe you. When you give your word, people should depend upon you. I suppose a good question for you and me is this. Is your word as good as gold? Do people trust you? Boys and girls, when you talk, when you speak, is your word truthful? Are your words truthful? Do you have to back it up by saying, I promise you got to believe me. I promise you got to believe me. I'm telling the truth this time. No, James is saying we ought to have single, reliable, dependable words that come out of our mouth. It should be consistent, it should be dependable, that it guarantees reliability. We don't want to be double-tongued, we want to be single-tongued. True, reliable, trustworthy, that's what Pastor James is saying. Even in the difficult trials of life, even in the context of chapter 5, when you're going through the hard times, and you feel like you've been oppressed, and you feel like you've been mistreated, and you genuinely have been, James has given these keys. What, 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 is, what does the pastor want? What, what does God say through James in his writing to you and to me? He says, Christian, have patient endurance. The Lord is coming. Patiently endure. So you trust God until Christ returns. Number two, you kill complaining against your brethren Number three, James calls us to endure trials through God's mercy. And he calls us in this fourth key to speak truthfully with reliable integrity. Christian, there's only one who's done this perfectly. And as you and I read these verses and we hear these verses expounded and the Spirit of God convicts our hearts and we have to come before Him and confess and we have to come before Him and say, Lord, give me the grace to change. We look to Christ. We look to Him as our champion. We look to Him as our forerunner. We look to Him, not our own lack of righteousness, we look to the one who is our perfect righteousness. Sure, if the Spirit of the Lord convicts you, confess it to the Lord. Confess it to others if needed. You seek to repent and turn from these sins and walk in ways that are holy in these particular areas. Sure, do that. But don't be so locked in this inwardly focused area of, I haven't done this, I don't measure up, you have to get out of that and look to Christ, our great righteousness. He is our Savior, our King, our Lord, and the one who's coming back again one day. So till he does, patiently endure. I began by telling you about John Hooper. He was the pastor in the English Reformation period in 16th century England during the dark days of Bloody Mary. Well, 
he was found. And he was sentenced and brought to trial. It was a public trial, and boy, was he degraded. You can read about it in Fox's Book of Martyrs. He was degraded. He was condemned. He was led through the city after his trial. And when they led him through the city after the trial, many came out and just lined the streets to salute him for his patient endurance in his Christian life. It was February 9th, 1555, the day of his execution, eight o'clock in the morning. He was brought forth from his chamber to go to the place where he would be burnt. And as he was journeying to the place where he would die, the story goes that he would often stop and he would look upward to heaven and pray to Christ. When he finally arrived at the place where he would be executed, John Hooper smiled and he grabbed hold of that wooden pole that he was to be chained to and burnt upon, and he hugged that pole. That was right next to the area where he preached week after week after week. He patiently endured, he patiently endured, he patiently endured, even until the end. But here's what tradition says. Right before he died in his chamber, he took a little piece of coal. And he wrote on the walls of that chamber where he stayed these words. Be content with patience. Be content with Christ. To bear your cross of pain. Because he can and he will recompense a thousandfold with joys again. So Christian, let nothing cause your heart to fail. What good words. What good encouragement for us. To be patient until the coming of the Lord. We need that patient endurance. And Christian, let's remember, our God is full of compassion. And our God is merciful. Amen? Do you believe that? Me too. Father, thank you for the wonderful, profound, glorious, so relevant truth in this chapter that we so desperately need. Thank you for these helpful verses in James chapter 5 so that we would be Christians who are marked by patient endurance until the coming of the Lord. Help us, Lord. We are weak. Fill us with inner strength. Would you remind us of your great character and of your soon return That when we are going through hard times, times of oppression, times of persecution, times of affliction, times of pain, times of suffering, help us to remember to endure because of your great mercy. We thank you and praise you for the power that is ours in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.